Hey, welcome back to the Out of State Hunter podcast. Today is a very special show. I don't get to do these very often, but I had the opportunity to stop in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish headquarters. And um, I have the opportunity to sit down with two employees here that I think are going to be fantastic references for the podcast today. And that's Nicole Tapman and Chad Nelson. And I don't want to take away from them at all. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Nicole, I'll let you go ahead and go first. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Nicole Tapman. I'm the big game program manager for the Department of Game and Fish. And uh, my role along with my team is to oversee the management and research of ungulates across the state. So we're sort of the biology behind license numbers. Very good. Not busy at all, I'm sure. No. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Chad, how are you today? I am good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. What do you do here at New Mexico Department of Game and Fish? So I am the assistant chief of the administrative services division and the licensing operations manager. Uh, I am responsible for all aspects of the draw along with our IT programmers. Um, So I'm the business wing. I basically sell and responsible for the sales of all the licenses, including all the draw licenses. Okay. We are going to talk pretty deep about how all that process works. So that's, that's good. I'm glad both of you guys, both of you are here to hit these topics. Um, so the first thing I wanted to jump into is, and I think this is always important. It, and it just points directly at the rules and regulation book that comes out every year. And that is what's new in the state. There's several topics that I'd like to talk about for sure. Um, Some of these are what's new as far as rules and regulation changes. Some of them are new hunts that are available to hunters out there and and most, well, not most importantly, but to non-resident hunters. So there's, there's some opportunity there. Um, If you, whoever wants to field that one, um, jump in and, and kind of take some of those new. Sure. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can go over some of those. So, um, the big new things for the 2023-24 license year are probably the biggest one is now muzzleloaders will be allowed to have open sights only. Previously, scopes were allowed, um, but now it's going to be only iron sights. Um, additionally, there's going to be a new once-in-a-lifetime hunt for Gould's Turkey of four licenses. Um, there's going to be once-in-a-youth hunt for Oryx and Ibex. There used to be youth hunts, but they were not once-in-a-youth, so that's just sort of a slight change in the designation there. Um, we have, we're going kind of back to youth encouragement hunts. They used to be encouragement hunts that allowed seniors to apply, but now we're moving back to just having youth apply, um, and, and be eligible for those hunts. We also kind of split our bighorn sheep hunts in the hatchet mountains area. We were having a little bit, um, heavy harvest on the little hatchets. And so we sort of split the little hatchets and the big hatchets, um, with a highway 81 down there. And so you can either put in for one or the other, but not hunt them both. There's some additional access to new, either new wildlife management areas that the department purchased recently or access to wildlife management areas that um, currently did not have access. So an example of that is the Elbar that was recently purchased by the department. So that'll be open for deer and elk hunting in the 2023 license year. It's a really cool property. When does that license year start? So when we're talking about these new licenses and new license years, what's the dates on those? The license year runs from April 1st to March 31st. The license year technically has already started because we have opened the draw application for the 2023-24 season. 
So the licenses you are buying in the draw application right now become valid April 1st. Okay, gotcha. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to make sure I had the dates right. Yeah, no worries. Um, so some other new things, we have opened some other areas to the over-the-counter Barbary sheep tag. Um, that's all GMUs outside of that southeast core area where we have Barbary sheep. So a lot of those units that used to be closed for Barbary are now open, but definitely consult the rules and info booklet on that. Um, we have sort of a new resident oryx hunt on White Sands Missile Range, working with the folks down there. That used to be the Iraq-Afghanistan hunt, but we um, broadened that to be um, eligible for any resident veteran in New Mexico. We've modified the definition of female or immature ibex to an animal that has horns less than 20 inches. So that changed from last license year, used to be 15, now it's going to be 20. And a uh, for we have a new designation, a new bag limit for Barbary sheep, and that's a female immature that has horns less than 18 inches. That's a new designation that we haven't had before, a female immature bag limit for Barbary sheep. So that's 18 inches long. Um, we have a new population management options for javelina and Barbary sheep. So that's your fifth choice when you're putting in for your application. It is going to be no longer legal to shoot turkeys on a roost. Um, and there's another new hunt for off-range orcs, um, a new hunt for seniors, 70 and older, um, a February oryx hunt that is going to be off range. So that's off White Sands Missile Range. That's not a once in a lifetime hunt. Are those, you mentioned that there's some new hunts in there. And I know, so specifically, I heard you say that that, that um, Rhodes Canyon oryx hunt, I believe, is for a resident veteran. Yeah. So that doesn't pertain to non-residents, obviously. But how about the rest of those hunts that we talked about that are new? Are they non-resident hunts? So, so some of them might be. If it's on a wildlife management area, it's going to be for resident only. Okay. Um, but some of the other hunts, you know, we don't have the over-the-counter Barbary is open to anybody. So that'd be open to non-residents sure. for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. And I'm excited about some of those new hunting areas for BARP. The, the hunt for seniors 70 and older is actually available to non-residents and residents. Okay. Good. Okay. I wanted Another thing I wanted to come back to was the muzzle loaders because I want to make sure that I got this right. Um, I, so you can't have a scope on a muzzle loader during a muzzle loader hunt. Can I have one on a muzzle loader during a rifle hunt? Is there, like, is there ways to still have a scope on a muzzle loader? Yes. So we have different designations for weapon types on your application. One is any legal sporting arm. Two is bow. Three is muzzleloader, crossbow, or bow. So on the weapon type three hunt, you cannot use a scope on a muzzleloader. Uh, you cannot use uh, red dots, but you can use fiber optic sights. Um, and on any illegal sporting arm, you can still use a scope on a muzzleloader. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. And I, I thought that that was the case where if you if like if you had a high powered muzzleloader or something that you can't use now for the type three hunts, which are muzzleloader hunts, then you can still use them on a on a rifle hunt if you had that. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So let's talk about is that I think that's it for the what what's new stuff. Let's yep. talk about some important reminders and important dates and things that people need to be aware of. Um, who wants to field that one? I'll take that one. Okay. Um, the most important things people need to know are the mandatory harvest reporting deadlines. Uh, if you had a license last, uh, in, if you have a current year license for the 2022 license year for deer, elk, pronghorn, or turkey, 
you have to report before February 15th uh, to avoid late fees, but you have to report by the application deadline, March 22, to avoid rejection of all your applications. The penalty for this is very severe. So uh, to avoid rejection, deer, antelope, um, elk, and turkey, you have to report by the 22nd. We actually give you till midnight, even though the application deadline is 5 p.m. So midnight yeah. on the 22nd, and then for all the other species, oryx, ibex, javelina, barbary sheep, and trapper licenses, it's April 7th. Yeah, okay. I knew those were a little bit later, but the... Okay, so the... April 7th is both late fees apply, and you get rejected. Okay. Your application You don't want rejected. that. You don't want that. You don't want that. So the, the application deadline is March 22nd, uh, 5 p.m. Um, you know, other important dates, obviously, the beginning of the license year is April 1st, um, People need to know, because we are in the first year of a, our four-year rule cycle, that the hunt codes have changed, potentially. So you cannot be looking at the 2022 rules book when you are applying for 2023 hunts. You may be giving us the incorrect hunt code. Yeah, right? I, so. I did just that. <laughs> yep. So I had that's... built my whole application plan and everything for New Mexico was done back in like November or December. And I went back to verify, and every single hunt code had changed. There you go. So, so if you're one of those guys that applies for the same thing every year. Yep, you um, have you, to pay attention. Yes, <laughs> you might want to just verify. and double If check. the picture on the cover is an elk, you have the wrong one. <laughs> you need the bighorn. Yeah. <laughs> so um, those are all important. Um, you're you're going to need to know what tagging option you want. There are two tagging options, e-tag or physical tag. Uh, and the other thing that's really important to know is... Um, that you have to purchase your game hunting license, which is required by law, you're going to do that through the draw application. We have a lot of folks every year that go to license sales, and license sales is in the current license year, but the draw application is for the next license year. Okay. Right? And you're prompted to do that through the application process, right? Through the application process, you will be required to do it. If you try to buy it in license sales, you will encounter a very large pop-up with massive red letters that tells you your license is going to expire on March 31st. If you see that, don't buy it yeah. <laughs> if you're Good. trying to do it for next year. Good. I, I appreciate that, yeah. that, that you have to buy the current one through the licensing process. I, I like that. Yep. Uh, any other important dates? Um, not, not really. We have extended hours on our, in our information center, um, non-residents, if you're unfamiliar with the process, our information center can put your application in for you. Um, so that's a, an easy way to make sure you get it done right. Yeah. Our, our staff generally knows, knows what you need and knows how to do it and we can do it for you. If you have any questions, uh, about any, anything related to the draw or anything else, you can also call our information center and they'll you know, either be able to answer the question or route you to the appropriate person. Yeah. And I've but done don't that. wait till the last minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the phone the lines get a little yeah. flooded. And, yeah. <laughs> that is true. In the last three days, if you call our 800 number, you might get me. Yeah. <laughs> the, and I've had to do that in the past. I've asked a few questions and I call and it's always a great response and, and good information. So I, I like those helplines. What about licensing requirements? Um, what's required to be able to hunt here in, in New Mexico? So again, uh, by law, you are required to purchase an annual game hunting license in order to apply for or purchase any big game or turkey license. So that's why we require you to buy it when you apply. Uh, there is an additional requirement called a habitat management and access validation, also required by law. So we force you to purchase it with your game hunting license because it's required. Unless you are exempt. And there are a few exemptions. It's only required uh, at age 18 uh and it is uh, you know 
disabled veterans are exempt, seniors over seven, anything a license is required for, it's required for, essentially. Okay. And again, you're prompted on the application. Yeah, you just don't you have, have it. to buy. You it. don't have a choice. We, yeah. we, we force it into your cart. You have the option to buy the habitat stamp. And this is a little complicated because we issue a combination license and tag and we mail it to you. And if you, when non-residents apply, they have the option to add the habitat stamp but they don't know whether they're going to draw or, yet, or mm -hmm. not yet, right? And so a lot of people want to wait until after. If you wait till after and then you don't purchase it before we mail you your tag, then you're going to have to buy it separately and carry it separately. Mm -hmm. So there is a consideration with purchasing the Habitat stamp and if how much you're going to need it. It's $10. 10 bucks. Okay. And it's required on Forest Service and BLM lands. Gotcha. Okay. Is so, hunter's education mandatory? Is that something that's required for purchasing a license? Uh, hunter education is only mandatory for people under 17, and that is also a little bit complicated because there is a different, there's a mobility, uh, not mobility impaired, um, mentor youth. There's a mentor youth certification that is not hunter ed that allows kids from 10 to 17 to hunt turkey, deer, pronghorn, and javelina. So for those species, hunter education is not necessarily required, but hunter education will be required for everything else. And once the mentor youth number expires, it's good for two years, then hunter ed is required. So hunter ed, like for example, for elk, hunter ed always required okay. for kids under 17. Okay. But for deer only if they don't have the mentor youth. <laughs> so again, it's a little complicated. How, do those, how does that get submitted? So, I mean, I don't think that's something that, or do you have if to you, take it through the state? You have to take, if you take it in New Mexico, then it will be entered by our hunter education program. Mm -hmm. If you took it out of state, you can just enter it yourself, state and number. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking that's, that's what I did. I think yeah. mine was from a different state, but. So hunter ed is also required on Fort Bliss for all Fort Bliss hunts. Gotcha. To include white sands? Does that include white sands? Uh, no. No. Okay. Only Fort Bliss. Gotcha. Okay. Um. Okay. Is that it for licensing requirements? Uh, pretty much. I mean, non-residents non really only have one option, and it's the game hunting license. They, yeah. don't, they okay. don't get the combo or anything like that. Right. Just and, game hunting. And they're prompted when they come through. So, yep. All right. So let's get into – this is probably going to be the a big part of today's show, and that is how does the draw process work. So I've got my application in there. Um, how does – once my application is in and I'm past that deadline <laughs> – what happens, right? How does the draw process for New Mexico work? So uh, what is really important to know about New Mexico's draws, it's different from most draws. A lot of states do their draw by choice. Like they look at all first choices, mm -hmm. and then they look at all second choices, and then they look at all third choices. Our draw does not work that way. It goes by application. So it's a little bit complicated, and it's a little bit difficult to determine your odds accurately. But essentially what happens there's t three parts of the draw, sequencing, fulfillment, and license generation. Sequencing is the assignment of a random sequence number to each application. Um, it's random. And so what I said, uh, what I've said recently is everyone has an equal chance of getting any sequence number, right? So it is really difficult to sort of know exactly what your odds are because of the way the draw runs. It's possible for somebody to draw a hunt as a third choice when somebody else has it as a first choice and they have a higher, way higher sequence number so they don't draw as a first choice, but somebody else is already drawing it as a third choice. Hmm. So the choices are sort of irrelevant uh, 
the choices you make are subject to the sequence number you get. Do, is it low enough to get any of the licenses? Okay. So the first part is sequencing. We assign a random sequence number to all uh, applications. And I guess it's a little complicated, but I want to explain the difference between the terminology of applications, applicants, and people. There's a difference between those three things. Okay. So we last year had about 121,500 people apply for draw hunts. Wow. Uh, about 82,500 of those were residents and 38, almost 39,000 non-residents, right? Well, the number of applicants we tell people we had is a 275,000 approximately, right? So we had 121 people, 1,000 people apply for 275,000 hunts, and that means that people are applying for multiple hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of applicants, uh, we're looking more at, you know, we're looking at 205,000 residents, 42,000 non-residents, and 26,000 outfitted, approximately. Uh, applicants is the total number of people who applied for a species. So it's a little complicated, but for example, if I apply for deer, elk, and oryx, then I am three applicants. Okay. But I'm one person. Okay. This is also a little complicated because an application can have more than one person on it, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a common question. If I have a party application, do we both get a sequence number? No, you don't. You both get the same sequence number. And there have to be licenses available for all applicants on the application, yeah, right? right. So that's important to understand. Uh, we sequence the applications. Sure. Right. So... Um, after the applications are sequenced, very complicated system goes through one by one from number one up. So just to illustrate how complicated this gets really fast, sequence number one is definitely going to draw their first choice. Sequence number two might draw their second choice already. <laughs> and the reason why is because we have a hunt that has one license. Yeah, sure. And if you chose that hunt as your first choice, then you're going to get your second choice. And it just gets more complicated from there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It gets complicated at sequence number two, potentially, and gets more complicated from there. Uh, so fulfillment goes through. It looks at all the choices on the application from one up, right? And it tries to allocate your first choice. And if your first choice is not, is can't be allocated, for example, if you have a non-resident and the non-resident pool is full, can't allocate to either one on the party application. So we're going to skip it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, then let's see uh what's the breakdown so that's that's kind of what i want to get into well actually there's a couple i have a couple more questions about the application process but um one is there how does it validate so after it goes through isn't there a validation period where it goes through and it's all checked to to verify everything is that new mexico or a different state what do you mean by verification like how does the system validate that there's not 500 people going to be running around in a unit that has 25 tags. Oh, that is done. Uh, that's part of my job. I, okay. verif- I verify that the draw ran correctly. Um, we do this manually, essentially. We go through, we go through all the hunt codes, and uh-huh. we verify that the fulfillment worked correctly. Yeah. Um, so, again, it goes, it goes through all the applications, and it tries to allocate first, second, and third. And if it can't do that, then it moves on. Mm-hmm. It goes through three times, right? So non-residents generally would get three choices. You can choose fourth or fifth, which we'll go over later, but um, generally don't 
necessarily recommend that for res- for non-residents. Uh, so they get the three choices. We do four rounds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first round is 84, 10, and 6, right? 84%, 10%, and 6%. And what that means, uh, you know, that requires non-residents, unfortunately, to do some math to determine how many licenses are available in their pool. And we'll get to that later. But it goes through four times, you know, first round, 84, 10, and 6. Second round by law is resident only, next resident in sequence. Third round is next in sequence regardless of pool. So we go through, if we haven't allocated all the licenses in round one, we go to round two, we issue the rest of the licenses to residents. And if there aren't enough residents to take them all in round two, then the rest are allocated in round three. Okay. Round four is fourth choice, and that's deer and elk only, and that's a quadrant of the state that you select where you'd be willing to accept any hunt. And I generally discourage non-residents from doing that. You do not get to choose the hunt, and it may be for a different bag limit than you selected for your other hunts. Yeah. Right? People are generally, well, not always, but sometimes disappointed with four-choice hunts because they don't really understand uh, that they have to be willing to accept any hunt. If you're getting it as a fourth choice, that means there weren't enough applicants to allocate it in rounds one through three. <laughs> there might be a th- reason. And that might be a clue, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, and, that, and you're saying that's for non-residents, and is that the ones that they drop kind of last minute? You may get a call that says we've got a hunt, or is that the fifth round? No, that's the fifth choice okay. population management is the potentially short notice hunt. Okay. Yeah. How short of notice? Can that be? Mm, could be a matter of days, potentially. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk about the breakdown of licenses, right? And this falls into, you mentioned it a minute ago, but we'll clarify it now, but the 84, 10, and 6 breakdown right. for the percentages. Um, so that's 84% of the allocation or the tags go to residents, 10 goes to outfitter, and 6 goes to uh, uh, non-residents correct did i get the 10 and 6 right correct yeah, okay. it is it is actually uh it's important to understand that we don't issue licenses in percentages we issue licenses in whole numbers so when you're talking about percentages we multiply the percentages and then we round to get to whole numbers okay that's a lot of math yep and yeah. that is uh, unfortunately what what uh, you know non-residents kind of need to know how to do the math because you need to know how many licenses are in your pool it's well, only six percent or ten percent potentially. Right? I'm hoping we might be able to do that real quick. So um, I had a, on the notes. I had a couple <laughs> of things here. That can we pr- provide an example for maybe a unit that has 300 tags on how those tags break down, and then a unit that has maybe 25, so far less. And then I had a note on here that I pulled out of the rules and regs that says note. It's very difficult for non-residents in units with 12 or fewer licenses. And well, I, that's correct. Um, because uh, this is because of a directive that was made by the commission in 2019 uh, to round down fractions 0.5 or greater if it would result in the addition of a license to the total. That's what makes it complicated now okay. to do the math. So let's uh let's take 300 300 is very very simple because you get whole numbers in all pools when you multiply Mm -hmm. so the math is take the number in the rules book multiply 0.84 0.1 and 0.06 by that number Mm -hmm. you get fractional numbers potentially or whole numbers whole numbers can't be rounded but fractional numbers have to be rounded because we can't issue 0.2 licenses we have to issue you one license and you round them down right 
Uh, so you have to know what the total is going to be now, okay. right? You, you know, it used to be the case that if it was 6%, you would multiply 6% by 5 and round up or down according to 0.5. Okay. Now you have to know what the total is. So, for example, at 25, 25 is a pretty good example of this. Multiply 0.84, uh, 0.1, and 0 0.06 by 25. The result is 21, 2.5, and 1.5. Well, 2.5 and 1.5 are identical fractions. So, unfortunately, I cannot tell you <laughs> which pool it is going to go okay. to now. We, it goes to the lowest sequence, the next in sequence. The last license goes to the next in sequence. It could be outfitted, and it could be non-resident, and that makes it a little complicated. Okay. So, the distribution is either going to be 21, 2, and 2, or it will be 21, 1, and 3, and we don't know in advance. Okay. Um, but what I can tell you is that statistically, it's more likely to be a non-resident just because of the number of applicants. So we see it go to yeah, non-residents okay, far, far more often than outfitted. Yeah. So um, that's a little bit of a complicated example. And unfortunately, you know, for non-residents, this is fairly complicated, you know, in general. There are a bunch of different rounding circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, at 5, we would get 4.2, 0.5, and 0.3. 4.2, any fraction in the resident pool always must ha has to be rounded up because the law says minimum. Right. So we always round up in the resident pool no matter what. Mm -hmm. That's the math that non-residents have to do in order to determine how many are in their pool. So multiply, 4.2 would round up in this circumstance to 5. Well, 5 is the total. And so 0.5 in the outfitted pool has to be rounded down to zero mm -hmm. and 0.3 obviously rounds down to zero it's less than 0.5 anyway okay so that's that's really good because there's a lot of antelope hunts out there that are five tags absolutely in the, in the hunt and it's probably why it's so darn hard for so, so a you non-resident to draw an antelope tag so you have to do all the math and there are also other circumstances it's not always true that you get 0.5 exactly sometimes you get a higher fraction sometimes you get a lower fraction here's an example 15 at 15, we get 12.6, 1.5, and 0 0.9. 0 0.9 is greater than 1.5, so it rounds up to 1. 1 1.5 rounds down to 1 also. 12.6 rounds up to 13. 13, 1, and 1. Okay. So that's how you have to do the math. It's yeah. a little complicated now, but that's how you have to do it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm a resident. I'm yeah. sitting in that, that resident pool. But for the yep. non-residents, there's it, yeah, math involved. Yeah. And unfortunately, they need to know, too, because their pools are so small. So it's important that they know whether it's, you know, uh, one or zero. Yeah. I, and it's it's absolutely important because I'm sure there's people out there that, that put a hunt on their application thinking they may have that that tiny little chance and the reality of it is when you do the math That's there's right. zero chance and you're wasting a spot on your application first choice second choice third choice whatever it is right you're, so, you're burning that spot when you could look for a, a hunt that has more more tags allocated to it right so so non-residents need to be looking for hunts that have enough licenses for them to have a chance to draw mm -hmm. right um and I guess and, I'll interject really quick right there on where do you find those those hunt numbers and how many hunts are there. And it's in the rules and regulation book. So then you scroll to the species in the book that you want, and it'll tell you how many tags are, are against whatever hunt code that it is. Right. The number of licenses is right. in the rules book for every hunt code. Yep. yep. Uh, so you did say that, you know, 12 licenses, the, because of this math, because we now have to round down fractions 0.5 or greater, if it would result in the addition of a license, non-residents don't start getting one until there are 13 total. 
right? If gotcha. there's 13 li hunt, uh, licenses for a hunt, then there will be one in the non-resident pool, and that's the first number. If there are less than that, our system now actually tells you and says the quota distribution is zero. You might want to oh, change really? that. Yes. When you're applying. Yep. When you're oh, applying. Wow. Good. We, we warn you. Um, so the only thing we can't warn you about is if you're attaching, however. Um, so yeah. uh, if you're attaching, we, we can't warn you. So be aware of that. Yeah. And that's if you're, uh, well, I guess if you're attaching to another non-resident. So a resident can't attach a non-resident. Right. I mean, you no, could, they can. Yeah, you they could, can. but uh -huh. that's kind of silly because then that resident falls into the non-resident numbers, correct? Well, what is, what's unwise is for residents to apply with non-residents. Okay. And also because of the pool is, you know, small for non-residents, they have to really think about it if they want to have a party application. Mm -hmm. Because again, there have to be two licenses if you have two people on your application and, yeah. the, and the overall number is so much lower for sure. non-residents that that is important. What happens if a non-resident attaches to a resident? What happens to that resident's opportunities? It, it, it harms the non-resident's chances greatly. And it's not that they're in the 6% pool, but they're subject to availability of a license in the 6% pool because there has to be a license for the non-resident when the sequence number comes up. Okay. And if there isn't, then the non-resident will not draw either. Okay. Cool. That's good info. I think that was one of the things I called for one time to get to ask because yeah. I had a friend of mine from Arizona that was like, "Hey, I can attach to your application." I said, yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to say that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> it's it's pretty common. It's a pretty common question. Yeah, should I should I attach? And then you know, if if two non-residents want to attach together, I mean, the, the the reason you want to attach is because I only want to go with my brother. Sure. Or what? Sure. You know, I don't want to go if I can't go with my brother. Right. So. And again, because of the way our draw works, if you apply separately, then you can't choose multiple choices and guarantee to draw the same hunt. Mm -hmm. You might draw a different hunt. Right. So that right. causes problems, too. Yep, totally. Um, how about uh, paying up front, or, or how does the – are we done uh, with the draw process? I think so. I, I, think, yeah. I think you nailed it pretty I, good. Well, we hacked around a little bit. And if there's more <laughs> questions on it, then there's there's a whole rule book that you can dig into, or there's a there's a customer. What's what did you call it? Hotline or something that you can call uh, in information center. Information center that you can call and and ask those questions. Um, I think Chad did a great job of explaining it. So let's talk about paying for tags. Some states you pay for everything up front. Some states you just buy a license and then you pay if you get drawn. How does New Mexico work? Uh, we are full fee up front. So you are going to pay all fees when you submit an application. Uh, all applications have to be paid or they do not go to draw. Uh, I guess I also want to point out, um, we sequence all draw applications. Even if you delete, we're still sequencing your application. And the reason we do that is because we have to have the ability to correct a mistake if we make it. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So... If you even if you delete, if you get rejected incorrectly or something, we have your sequence number, so we know whether you would have drawn or not. Right? That's a number. Maybe something <laughs> that you don't want to know. Well, right. uh, you know, <laughs> this is what we do. Yeah, <laughs> We're well, pretty thorough. You would have had a bighorn sheep tag, but you uh -huh. pulled it back. All right. So, so the payment. There's a couple of considerations. There are quality versus uh, standard fees for non-residents. So, if you are, uh, you have to pay the highest fee. If you are choosing a quality fee hunt on your application, you're paying the quality fee. If you have a standard fee hunt that you draw when we run the draw, 
then we'll refund you the difference. Gotcha. Yep. So there's three different types of hunts that you can draw in New Mexico, a standard uh, high demand and quality, right? High demand and quality are the ones that are higher priced. Correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So you're saying if you're if you have one choice that's a high demand or a quality hunt on your application, you're going to pay that full high demand quality price. Yep. If you draw the standard, you'll get a partial refund after the draw after. Right. Okay. Yep. And what's the how long is that refund process? So we run the refunds uh, immediately after we release the draw results, within one usually the next day. Okay. So it's pretty quick then. It is pretty quick. Usually people will see them. Um, a, a very, very common question that I get is people say, oh, I didn't get my refund. All I can tell you is that what we see is that we issued a refund. A transaction was processed. Money was taken out of our bank account. Yeah. So if we are telling you we issued the refund and you're saying you didn't get it, you need to get with your financial institution. Okay. Because what happens a lot is we they change cards. They give you a new card. Whatever happens the the financial institution actually has to apply the refund to your card and sometimes that hasn't happened yet so gotcha. if you get with them they usually they'll apply it okay so it should happen pretty quick from you guys yes, if it, it doesn't then yep that's a whole nother bunch of phone calls that probably then, need to be then, made then i'm in pro- then i'm in enormous trouble <laughs> if it doesn't happen yeah. i'm in enormous yeah. trouble um changing your selections after you apply so is it possible to make a change to your application after you've already got them in uh, not if it's been paid. So you put it in your cart. Mm-hmm. If it's still in your cart and you haven't paid for it, you can change it all you want. But okay. once you have paid for it, it cannot be changed. Uh, the only way to change it is to delete the application and reapply. If you delete the application, you get that refund pretty much immediately, one to two days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then you reapply. Now this gets a little complicated if people are attached. Oh, I bet. Yeah, you got, oh, I have four people on my application, and I selected the wrong hunt. Well, unfortunately, you all have to delete, and then you have to redo the entire process. Ooh, okay. person has to create it, and then you have people attached to yeah. it. But in order to change a hunt, everybody has to delete and reapply. Okay. I could see that being tough. I think last year on my application, I, I did make a change. but And it was pretty simple to do. You just go into the Game of Fish website and through into the applications. And delete it, right? And then you just reapply for what you want. It was pretty simple to do, but it was, yeah. I mean, you got to pay the price of whatever. You have to repay the fees again. You yeah. get you get refunded the license fee, and then you have to pay the application and license fee again. So mm-hmm. it does cost you the application fee, which is how much? Uh, Seven dollars for residents, thirteen for non-residents. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we talked about refunds. How about if you draw a tag that you're unable to use? Can you return that tag to the game of fish? So there are circumstances, death, medical, and military for draw licenses allows you to request a refund or transfer the license. If you do not qualify under death, medical, military, military, so that's if the hunter has died, by the way, and it's also if the hunter is injured. Uh, we get that a lot, unfortunately. That um, So the law is very restrictive. Sure. The reason it's restrictive is because, by definition, a draw license prevents somebody else from going, <laughs> right? right? You're preventing somebody else from going. Um so, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So That's under okay. those three circumstances, death. Oh, death, medical, military. Um, yeah, they can turn it in, right? They can turn the license in. They can get a refund. If they request a refund, we actually offer the license to the next available applicant 
in the sequence, right? Mm -hmm. So again, we have the sequence, so we know who that is. Um, if they do not qualify to request a refund or transfer, they can donate the license with no refund. And that goes through nonprofits approved by the Game Commission. They provide eligible recipients to us. We transfer the license. Once that license is transferred, um, then you are off the hook for it, right? You don't have it anymore. It's somebody else's license now. What if the next... Oh, never mind. That, that's silly. I was going to say, what if the next person already had drawn a license in the sequence, but they're yeah, not no. next, right? Because nope. they've, already, they've no. already been taken out of the system. Yes, yeah, next available. Next available. <laughs> okay. next available. Gotcha. Yeah. And in the military clause, um, I won't get too crazy into military because I actually have a whole other show planned that's all kinds of um, military opportunities. But the, I, my friend used that a couple of years ago, and he got a fantastic elk tag, and it was because... Uh, one of his friends was deployed and wasn't able to use the tag that he drew. So that deployed service member was able to donate it to another. It has to be another service member, right? Uh, eligible recipients are resident veterans and first responders and youth. Okay. Gotcha. So, so, so what, what you're talking about was probably a transfer where, because yeah, military deployment is a condition for a transfer. Okay. That's what it was. Then. Yep. Yeah, he got lucky. Yep. It was a great tag. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about outfitted hunts and how do those work? How do you obtain an outfitter tag and, and how does that work? So in order to apply in the outfitted pool, you have to have a signed contract with the outfitter. Uh, on the application, we ask you, uh, do you have a signed, do you confirm that you have a signed contract with an outfitter? And if you say yes to that, then we ask you for the outfitter number. So you have to enter the outfitter number, which you really can only get from the outfitter mm -hmm. uh, on the application. That puts you in the 10% pool. Okay. So all of that needs to be arranged. Deals need to be made you, prior to the it, application. You have to have a contract yeah, okay. in order to apply in the outfitted pool. We, there is also, um, you know, if you have to choose your tagging option when you apply as well. And if you're choosing a physical tag, you have the option to have it mailed to the outfitter directly if you want to. Um, you also have the option... Well, actually, that's really the only option you have. Is there e You can't e-tag for No, you can e-tag. Okay. Yeah. Anybody can e-tag. You can choose either e-tag or physical tag. But if you choose the physical one and we're going to mail it to you, we you, we can mail it to the outfitter if okay. you choose that. Gotcha. Um, landowner tags. So this is something that's pretty unique to, as far as I know. I mean, I think there's a couple of other states, but New Mexico has really good landowner tag opportunities. Can you explain those? Yeah, so we have elk tags that landowners can get through the E-plus system. So that's sort of, it's, I guess it's not necessarily a tag. It's an authorization that the department provides to landowners participating in E-plus that are making a meaningful contribution to elk, the elk population in the area. Um, and so the, those landowners are put in a pool that has their own drawing, and I won't go into that because it's pretty complicated itself, but that is one way to get an elk tag is go through a landowner or an outfitter and, and obtain one of those authorizations. In some areas of the state, um, those, those licenses can be purchased over the counter, depending on if it's a primary management zone for elk or secondary. Another way that you can get landowner landowner tags or authorizations is for deer and pronghorn. Those are over-the-counter species on private deeded land only. Um, and so you just, you know, work with the landowner to get, you know, access to their property. Once you have that written permission, then you can hunt on their, on their property under the season dates that are listed in the rules booklet. 
I, so there's also some really great things I think that happen with those landowner tags. And you see a lot of nonprofits who will purchase that tag and then they'll donate it or they'll do something with it to give, gosh, I've seen all kinds of people use those landowner tags from, from, um, mobility impaired people who just want to have a hunt and people get them donated. And I think it's their ease of use, ease of access that makes them great for that type of opportunity. I bought one a few years ago and, and had an awesome cow elk hunt on a landowner tag, and it was super, super cool. Um, mine was a, a unit wide. Can you talk about the difference between the unit wide and the um, yeah. land, landowner, I or, guess, or the ranch only? Ranch, yeah. ranch only. Yeah, so I guess when, when somebody is, is looking at their options on getting an elk tag, or I guess either deer or pronghorn as well, um, deer and pronghorn is going to be ranch only, or or a written permission on other ranches if you can get it. Elk is a little bit different in that you can get a license from a landowner or an authorization, turn it into a license, and then hunt um, unit-wide. And that's not in every single case, so you gotta be pretty um, diligent in doing your homework on that that tag that you're considering purchasing. But some of those are um, unit-wide, so you can hunt on you know, forest service land, BLM land across the unit, but not in every single case. Gotcha. So, so the, the private land option, generally people buy the authorization from the landowner. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's important to know that this is generally a much more expensive option. Yeah. The authorization allows you to purchase the license from us. And you still then have to purchase the license. Right. You still have to purchase the license from us. That's right. And that's very good to clarify. So you you buy uh, the authorization and it's a code. When I did mine, it was a code that I got from the landowner, whoever it was. And I got that code. And then then you go through the application process on the game and fish. And then you buy the the tag. And and that's how that works. So it's not like you just go on and and buy it it's got there's a there's a process for it yeah you you cannot hunt with an authorization right yeah you have to have a license to hunt in new mexico um what are enhancement hunts so these are pretty good opportunities too i think are those available to non-residents yeah so enhancement hunts are are pretty special they're some of i guess some of our statewide tags so the enhancement program if i'll just be brief about it is a way that um the department auctions or raffles a really special hunt opportunity that money then goes back so the money that the sale price of that comes back to the department and then it goes into a pot of money that um, does habitat work or or research on that particular species so for bighorn sheep you know those are auctioned for a lot of money Um, that money comes back to us and then we spend it on bighorn sheep management projects you know translocations, collaring projects, etc. So those hunts are, um, there's a couple different options. They're either raffled or auctioned. So the auctions usually happen like at the big hunting conventions, the sheep show, the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. Um, and then the raffles are, are similar, but you purchase those like a raffle ticket through Wild Sheep Foundation in New Mexico or whatever. Um, so those are, those are not subject to any quota. They're just whoever wins that ticket or, or has the highest bid wins those. Okay. Gotcha. And special opportunity hunts. So seniors, mobility impaired. I know military was another special opportunity, but again, I, like I said, I'm going to get military on a, on another show. Um, are those available to non-residents as well? Um, yes. Yeah, so the, the only senior opportunity available to non-residents is that new off-range orcs hunt mm-hmm. in February for seniors over mm-hmm. 70. Non-residents qualify for that. 
non-residents qualify for mobility impaired uh, only hunts um, as well as youth hunts um, things like that okay uh, they also um, qualify for the military only hunts which yeah you can get into at some other time sure, uh, but sure. those are on Fort Bliss and there is a junior game hunting fee for non-residents also and what's that? Fifteen dollars. So, the regular fee is sixty-five. Okay, gotcha. And that, I think that's a good transition because the next thing that I had on my list was price of tags, and we can be kind of um, we can be kind of brief on this. It, mostly, I just kind of want to think about it from the elk, antelope, and uh, uh, deer perspective of what's the total. How much are you going to pay? You got to buy the tag and then a license and then and whatever you have because and the other reason i'm saying is we can be kind of brief is there's a pretty long list of opportunities that you have here in new mexico and i, I don't think we need to go down the whole list i challenge people or i encourage encourage is a better word to go look those up right they're in the rule book and you can go find out how much you're going to pay right the, the minimum you're going to pay for your game hunting license is 65 69 because of the habitat management and access validation if you add the habitat stamp it'll be 79 Okay. And then species fees are either going to be the quality fee plus the application fee. So it would be 773 for elk versus 548. Okay. For standard. Yeah. And then it, so it depends I, I, on what you choose. <laughs> it depends on your sure. the options you select, what the total will be. And I'll refer back to the regulation again because those are all listed. So when you go through and you're looking at the hunt code and the hunt dates and the, the how many tags are available in a unit, it's listed right there. It's either got an S or an HD or a Q next to it. And if you see the HD or the Q, you're paying that higher price. If you see the S, then you're going to pay the lower price. Yeah. Okay. All the draw fees are on page 12 of the rules book so awesome um over the counter opportunities so this one might be a little bit long i, I don't really know but what over the counter opportunities are out there for non-residents if they wanted to come and hunt in new mexico uh as nicole said private land deer and pronghorn um all of those hunts correspond with the public land hunt codes so you select one of the public land hunt codes. Uh, the, that's the dates of your hunt. You have to have written permission, as she said. Uh, private land deer, pronghorn, there is an over-the-counter javelina uh, license available. There are public and private Barbary sheep over-the-counter licenses available. There is an over-the-counter license available for Ibex outside the Florida Mountain draw area. Uh, private land oryx, bear and cougar, and f spring and fall turkey are all over-the-counter. Okay. Gotcha. You may have touched on this. I, I want to ask one more time. How, so if a person wants to get one of those private land antelope tags, how would they find one of those? Do they need to know the landowner or they need to know somebody? Or is there a place where you can – there's probably no place to look that up. Huh? You, gotta, you, you have to have written – you have to know yeah, the landowner. Okay. You have yeah. to have written permission to buy it over the counter. Uh, there, is a, there is a bit of a different – there are a few – are those called ranch-wide agreements? There's ranch-wide agreements, right? Mm -hmm. That that are, there are a few private land uh, antelope or pronghorn opportunities under those, but they're it's sort of rare. Yeah, yeah, it's very limited. So generally, you're looking at an over-the-counter license, and you have to have written permission from the lender. So you have to know the landowner essentially. Yeah. Okay. And you should probably figure that out before buying. Yeah, yeah, be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. please, please figure that out. Uh, to keep yourself out of trouble. Yeah, and then for the over-the-counter opportunities, if if a guy, if a person wanted to come to New Mexico and hunt Barbary sheep over the counter, they just go to Walmart and buy the tag, or they 
Can they yeah. buy it over the counter on the New Mexico Game and Fish and have it mailed? Or all all of, all of our licenses are available online mm-hmm. in our online license system. If you buy it online, we will mail you a tag as long as we have enough time. Barbary that's a year round license, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, they're available online or by phone. Anybody can call our information center anytime, purchase a license from us. You can buy it at any licensed vendor as well. And okay. that includes all of our area offices. Okay. So pretty easy to get. You just got to know what opportunities are out there, right? Yep. And, yeah. yep. and then make sure if it's private landowner, you've got permission. Um, okay. So the last thing, well, not really the last thing, but I kind of want to move into some of um, just some of the rules that I picked out of the rule book. And uh, the first one I want to touch on is waste of game. And by waste of game, uh, what is required to take off of the animal in order to get it out of the field? So, um, so you have to, you have to remove the edible portions of the meat from the field for human consumption. And what that, what we consider that is all four quarters, mm-hmm. tenderloins, back straps, and the neck meat. Okay. Right. So no rib. You don't got to peel out you the rib. You do not meat have to take the the rib meat if you don't want to. Okay. And organ meat. No, nope. Not no. required to take organ okay. meat. Yeah. So all four quarters, back straps, tenderloins, tenderloins, and, and neck meat, neck meat is Except required. in the case of javelina. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Except for javelina, because uh, actually javelina, bear, and cougar. Yeah. You okay. don't have to. You don't have to remove edible portions of meat for javelina, bear, or cougar. So you don't have to take anything. Legally. Well, no. legally. Well, you have to take with the, a pelt. Right? You have to take the pelt for a bear and cougar, and and proof of sex. Uh, yeah. Along with the pelt. For javelina, I'm, do you have to take anything for javelina? I'm I don't. I, no, I don't think. You I don't think you have to take anything for javelina. No. But for the bear and the cougar, there is a pelt tag requirement, and that's listed in the, the rules and regs. You basically have to check that in with game mm-hmm. and fish whenever you take it, and that requires proof of sex, which is one of. The things that I had on there to talk about, so we'll just kind of slide into that. Um, obviously, it's required for bear and cougar. What about deer, elk, antelope? You got to have proof of sex attached when you take those out of the field. Yeah, in some cases you do. Um, for let's see, for like Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, you you're going to need the proof of sex that you actually harvested a you, okay, rather than a, a ram. So. Okay. The external genitalia attached is a good way to prove that you're legal in possession of what you should be licensed for. Okay, but for an elk, for for elk, if it's a if it has antlers, then that's obvious. Okay. You have to have the you have to have the um, um, if it's a cow. I think proof of sex is still the scalp and both ears. Yes, I think it's still okay. scalp and both ears. Okay, so I guess also, it kind of differs. Yeah, yeah it differs by species. Yeah. yeah. Or because I would think you probably have to have proof of sex. I don't that know. is an either sex tag. Those yeah. Are all oh, it doesn't, matter. So it doesn't okay. matter. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, that's a little hard to determine in the yeah. field. Right? So, um, okay. So we talked waste of game. We talked proof of sex. Um, what about this one? Um, removing the animal from the state. And that kind of falls into the Lacey Act type of, type of deal. Is there any process if I live in indiana and i'm taking my elk back home to indiana is there anything that has to be done with that animal prior to taking it out of the state well you have to tag it in new mexico to prove legal possession while you were in new mexico uh you need to know what indiana's rules are Mm -hmm. to once you leave new mexico i think Um, yeah yeah so okay 
And if you are, if you have a cervid license, so deer or elk, in units 19, 28, or 34, there are some requirements of, of leaving parts of those animals in the field because those units have chronic wasting disease detected in them. So um, in order to, you know, kind of <laughs> slow the spread of, of CWD, we've, we've implemented some of these restrictions to not bring parts of those carcasses outside of those units. So if you're hunting in 1928 or 34, pay attention to CWD regulations. Okay. Um, and then if I wanted to donate, so we, we ran into this, not problem, but we ran into a game and fish officer in Colorado and I was giving half of my deer to my buddy. Uh, is there something that needs to be done because he can't transport it home and there's no tag for him to be able to transport it home. So how do you, how do you say, take half of this animal and good luck, right? Or is there a process to be able to give him authorization to have it? Yes, there is. We have a donation certificate. Uh, I believe it's on our it's on our website. So if you are giving someone game meat, or mm-hmm. if you're having someone transport it, you would use the donation certificate. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty easy. There's yeah. only a few pieces of information on yeah. it. Yeah, that's that's the way it was in Colorado as well. It was just kind of tag number and my name and yeah. right, just some important information just to kind of validate my phone number. Um, definition of legal sporting arms. So what is a person legally allowed to use for a rifle, uh, muzzleloader, archery, tackle, what's all that stuff? Uh, well, that is all actually listed under, um, so we actually are calling them big game sporting arms now. Okay. And I think it's a 22 caliber center fire or greater for most species now um center fire only obviously you're not mm-hmm. using a you're not using a 22 rim fire for anything please <laughs> right. <laughs> right. um center fire 22 caliber or greater for um for for most species really uh but it varies a little bit so there's legal sporting arms for cougar javelina and fur bearers that are a little bit different um you know muzzle loaders for big game have to be 45 caliber or larger um you know they all have to be fired from the shoulder, Okay, that kind of thing. It's all listed under uh, the big game and turkey rules in the rules book, though. Okay. What page you got there? Uh, 28. All right. And for, just for listeners, before we finish up here, I will link a link to the Game of Fish website in the show notes. And I think there's a link directly to the rules and regs, which I can, I'll link that so okay. that you have it and you can download it. It's PDF. Um, okay. We talked, uh, tagging animals. How do you, t- so I think there actually, I think it's on the tag itself that shows you how to legally tag an animal so that, you know, um, it does. And actually we, we, we had a little hiccup, uh, in the current year, we could not get vinyl on adhesive backing material. Mm-hmm. And so we had to go back to paper this year. Uh, we are going back to vinyl next year. Thank goodness. Mm-hmm. So, so you, it's a sticker. You peel, you peel it off, and you put it through the hawk, at, according to the picture on the back, and yeah. stick it to itself. Not right? to That's the antler, right? Do you put it on the antler? Uh, there, uh, some species have an antler tag. Okay. If it's an antlered animal, you do have to antler tag it as well, yeah. and you get an antler tag and a carcass tag. So right. you tag the both. antler and the carcass. Gotcha. And this is, uh, so there is also the e-tag option where you have to tag on your smartphone. You hit a button, you get the tag number, you handwrite, the tag number with your name and date of kill on some sort of durable material, duct tape, flagging, rayburn or something, and then attach it to the animal in a similar way. Gotcha. 
all explained on the tag, right? That tells you pretty much all of that's there. It's on the tag. The yeah. the when you choose e tag, um, we don't give you a tag. We give you instructions for okay. how to use the e tag. Gotcha. App. What to do? But you need to make sure that you tag like. There's an app, and you tag that animal. You hit the button for tagging the animal in the field, and then it gives you that Yes, answer. and there are some considerations with the eTag app. Um, you have to log in while you have service, and you have to stay logged in, or you will not be able to tag. If you log out before you leave service, and then you don't have service, you can't log back in, and you can't tag. So this is a common mistake. People log out, or they don't realize they need an app <laughs> uh, to begin with, but you have to download this app. You're required to be able to show your license on your phone. What you print says this is not a license. You right. have to be able to show it on your phone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how does that work if I if I log in but then I just I'm way deep in the mountains and there's no service and I hit tag the animal, does it still register or does yes. it just pick up as soon as you, you nope. grab the next Wi Fi? It it all the next all it's designed to do is show you your tag number. Okay. It is stored locally in your phone. You can't see it until you hit the button. Okay. And the tag number is what you have to put on the animal to, All right, to prove gotcha. legal possession. Good. Blaze Orange. Is Blaze Orange required in New Mexico? It is not required in most cases. There are some specific hunts where it will be, like Oryx hunts that are on White Sands Missile Range. Um, on hunting elk on Bias Caldera, it's required. So for the most part, no. Uh, but some specific cases, yes. Okay. It's it's military reservations and firearm hunts on Mobias Caldera. That's okay. pretty much all that Blaze Orange is required for. Although we do, I think, recommend it. You know, yeah. Generally speaking, yeah, never never recommended. A bad idea when you're, especially rifle hunts. And, um, okay, and just to co- I don't know if you guys have this or not, or if this is um, more of the guys out in the field. But do you know what the most common violations are that people have when they're out and what they see? I, I actually talked to our officers about this. Um, th- there are a lot of common violations. Hunting without a license is very common. Mm-hmm. It is also extremely common that people don't have a habitat stamp. So that's why we talked about that before. Sure. Habitat stamp is an easy one to forget. We we can't require you to purchase it like we do for the habitat management and access validation. So it's easy to forget. And, you know, you only need it for Forest Service and BLM, and it's a little complicated. But... Remember to get the habitat stamp. If you have any plans to hunt on Forest Service or BLM lands, you got to have the habitat stamp. Uh, unlawful possession is uh, if you don't have your animal tagged, then it is not legally possessed. So you have to make sure you have something attached to your animal. If you have a dead animal on the ground, you have to have a tag of some sort on yeah. it to prove legal possession. Uh, we do have a lot of problems with the e-tag. People let their phones die. You can't let your phone die. You have to be able to show your license. If you can't show your license in the field, then you do not possess a license. Uh, trespassing is always an issue. We have people who hunt, you know, uh, private land on a public land license and vice versa. They get cited for that quite a bit. Um, and shooting from the road. Those yeah. are those are the ones they, they told me were the, kind of the most common. I'm sure so. they are. And there's a pretty inclusive list of of rules that have to be followed in the the rules and regs guidebook so i I would recommend looking at that prior to and it might help uh, eliminate some of those common violations man i think that 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 um habitat stamp is probably a toughie i bet i bet that happens a lot i mean like i just buy mine with my license so it's there right but it's seven bucks you said seven dollars so ten bucks ten bucks so for non-residents, it's always a challenge because they're paying a lot of money to apply yeah. and they don't necessarily want to pay the additional 
ten dollars yeah. uh, before you know when they apply because they don't know if they're going to draw yet and they don't know if they need it. Well, then they forget yeah. and then they're out there without it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're cited. Yep. So, yeah. All right. Um, anything else we missed? that you guys want to touch on that I, I didn't have as good notes? I would well. say that if you want more information on the draw, Chad Nelson did a, <laughs> a video that's posted on the Game and Fish website. So okay. can go in maybe a little more depth into some things. Into a few things, sure. And, uh, you know, people can always call us. Okay. I think I saw you guys post something about that video the other day on your Instagram page. So you guys do have social media where people can go to and they can look and get updates and there's a lot of things that are provided through social media that um I, for whatever reason i don't think people follow a lot of the game and fish websites from states and yeah. <laughs> it's an avenue right it's a great way to to get information so i would suggest if you're going to hunt in new mexico follow along and yep. check it out and if you don't want to watch me talk for 40 minutes um you can uh, there are also lots of other resources on our website we have a, a page of you know tips for increasing your odds we you know, sort of indicate how the draw works, and we we have resources yeah. to explain all of those things. There's going to be a series of videos released in the coming weeks on different species. So, you know, what changes have been made to the elk rule or the deer rule or whatever. So, with those species biologists talking about uh, maybe changes in populations or whatever. So, if there's interest in this upcoming license year, I just I suggest following those videos. Gotcha. That's your team, I guess. Yes. Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to sit down and, and chat with me. And it's cool to come up here to the headquarters and, and be like, there's some really cool animals out in the front lobby, too. <laughs> What's that record pronghorn out there? 90 and two eights? There's a pronghorn uh, out there that's just enormous. It yeah. is enormous, and it's, it's not, not the record. record. <laughs> it's not the record. Nope, not the record. The well, record is actually quite a bit bigger than geez, that. <laughs> that thing is big. It's 95 is the record, the world 90s, record. And New Mexico actually holds the world record. 96 and great pronghorn. something. Great yeah. Yeah. We may have the top two, but we have some enormous. We have some enormous pronghorn <laughs> box for sure. Cool. Very cool. Well, New Mexico is definitely a fun state. I'm really fortunate I get to be a resident here. So this this was kind of a tough uh, podcast for me to do because as I was really coming up with these notes, I, I kept catching myself looking at it from a resident perspective. So I definitely wanted to bring in you guys, right, to, to have you guys come on and talk about what you see from, from the game and fish level. But thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chad. Uh, yeah. Thank you. All right.